All right, thank you, Abe. I am Pastor Michael. I want to welcome our visitors. We're so glad to have you here. So our, um, this is going to be a, a fun Christmas sermon, and it's going to be less a sermon and really more a Bible study, because we're going to just race through a lot of Bible passages. And we're going to begin by looking at the classic Christmas passage, uh, which is Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she is pregnant, even though she is a virgin. And so let's read uh, the passage. We actually already looked at it in the call to worship, but we'll look at it again. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. It's printed for you in the bulletin, page 4. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and it will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will, get, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So what is this text telling us? It's telling us that you cannot understand who Jesus is until you understand that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy that he is fulfilling is that he has inherited the throne of his father David and his kingdom will know no end. It will, ne it will never cease. He will reign forever. And the New Testament is very consistent on this point that Jesus came in accordance with prophecy that his birth, death, and resurrection were all described beforehand in the Old Testament this is the main argument that was made by the apostles. This was their main evangelistic message. And this was a major reason why the, the early church grew so explosively in the ancient world. And just to give you one example of this, in Acts 17. So in Acts, uh, the apostle Paul, he's going around the Greco-Roman world preaching Christ or preaching Jesus and uh, in every city that he goes to, he first goes to the Jewish people because they are the most familiar. Of course, they, they understood the Old Testament. And he makes the case to them. And so this is the, in Acts 17, he goes to Thessalonica. So let me just read it to you. It's in your bulletin, verse, starting in verse 2. And Paul went in. Okay, so this is the synagogue at Thessalonica, as was his custom, meaning he did this in every city. And on three Sabbath days, meaning over the course of three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so today, we're going to go through the basic argument that the Apostle Paul must have given, we can sort of piece together throughout the New Testament. We see it especially in the four Gospels. All throughout the Gospel accounts, the Gospel writers will pause and say, this was in fulfillment of Scripture. But before we dive in, let me give you some basic facts to sort of appreciate the situation. So what we now, as Christians, call the Old Testament the Jewish people, of course, just simply called scriptures. Literally, it's the writings. 
The Old Testament is not a single book. It's actually a collection. It's an anthology of 39 books written by over 30 authors, written over a 1,600-year period, and then completed 400 years before the time of Christ. The last uh, book is Malachi, and we'll get back to that later because this is important, the timeline. But I want to pause and reflect on how astonishing this is. Okay? Jesus of Nazareth is easily... I think indisputably, the most important, the most influential, the most significant figure in world history, not only because of the sheer number of followers, right? There are over 2 billion people on earth who call themselves Christians, but in terms of his enormous impact on world history and events, from the abolition of slavery to, you know, the advent of uh, hospitals and the scientific revolution. He has had an enormous impact on Western civilization. So easily the most influential person, at least in the top three, and his birth, life, and death was foretold in astonishing detail. Not vague prophecies, but very specific, very detailed prophecies, not just in one book of the Old Testament, but in every book of the Old Testament, not just in one small time period, but across multiple centuries, all throughout, how do you explain that? If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the creator God who came to live with us and teach us and ultimately save us as a human being, and I know that's an extraordinary claim, and therefore that requires extraordinary proof, but if that's true, that the fact that his birth and life was foretold long in advance, that would make sense. It would fit with the magnitude, the greatness of the claim. There is no other historical figure, and uh, I'm someone who loves history. I'm an ardent lover of history. So I, I think I could say this pretty definitively, pretty confidently. There is no other historical figure on which this claim can be made. Dozens and dozens of very specific prophecies, concrete predictions, at the very least, this should cause us to wonder, right? Maybe it's true. It deserves serious consideration. You can't just sort of wave this with, uh, dismiss it with a wave of your hand. Here you have the most important historical figure who has ever lived, and his birth and his death is predicted the details of his birth, the details of his life was spelled out for us beforehand. So today we're going to do a survey of these, uh, of the major prophecies. It's not going to be an exhaustive survey. If so, we would literally be here all day. And as I said, literally every book of the Bible, I would argue every chapter of the Bible is a prediction of Jesus. But we are going to look at a number of texts, and let me just give you um, three caveats before we start. Number one, I think any one particular, even any two particular texts or predictions, you can say, well, I'm not that impressed, or it could go either way. So it, it doesn't rest on any single prophecy. We're talking about the sum total, the cumulative stacking of prophecy upon prophecy. I think is very compelling, it's very persuasive. Secondly, 
Um, because it's a quick survey, we're not gonna go in depth. And so a lot of times, maybe you're going to wish we went more into the context, but simply because of the sheer volume, we're gonna go very quickly. The final, um, the final thing, just to help frame our understanding, is that the prophecies start out very broad. And then over time, they become narrower and narrower and more specific and more concrete. And sort of the metaphor that I would give you is imagine you're developing a photo in the dark room. You know, and you're putting that photo in that, I don't know what you would call that, that photo liquid, right? And then at first, the image is blurry. You can't quite make out the details. But over time, gradually, the picture becomes sharper and clearer. And that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament. So let's begin. First text we're going to look at is Genesis 3.15. This is the very beginning of the Bible. We're in the Garden of Eden. This is immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. And God gives a prophecy. And it's strangely stated because he's actually addressing the serpent. He's, he's addressing Satan. But this is verse 15. Let me read it to you. God says, I will put enmity, that means hostility, between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what do we learn here? The first thing, very basic, God's response to the fall is not condemnation. He doesn't bring down the hammer of judgment, but instead, he launches a rescue plan. And the whole rest of the Bible story is the unpacking and unfolding of this rescue plan. And we're told two things here about the rescue plan. Number one, we're told that there will be a rescuer. There will be a savior, and he will be the offspring of Eve. In other words, a future descendant, a future child out of Eve will be that savior who will execute the rescue plan. And the rest of the Bible is almost like a mystery novel. Who is this offspring? Who is this rescuer and savior? The second thing we learn is that there will be enmity between Eve's offspring and Satan. There will be this climactic great battle in which the serpent will be destroyed because his head will be bruised. So that's a mortal wound. But the victory, that victory, will cost the Savior because his heel will be bruised. So that's uh, the first passage. Secondly, we're going to look at Genesis 12. This is where God calls Abraham. So what we learn here is that this Savior, the offspring of Eve, will come from Abraham's family. Verse, verses 2 and 3, let me read it to you. God says, I will make of you, he's speaking to Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who, dis who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what do we learn here? The birth of the Savior is narrowed from all possible descendants of Eve, right? So from the, the, the pool of all humanity, and it's narrowed to one nation, a single nation, which is the descendants of Abraham, and Abraham is told that his nation will be a great nation, the nation of Israel, so that the Savior that, there were, that we're waiting for, that we're looking for, will be from the nation of Israel. 
We're also told that he will be a savior not just of his own people. He will not just save his, his, his own nation of Israel, but he will be a savior to the whole world because God says, in you, all families, not just your family, but all families of the earth will be blessed. And so the scope of this rescue plan is the whole world. The drama focuses on Israel, but the beneficiaries is the whole world. And if I could sort of give you another imagery, imagine there's a stadium and all of humanity is sitting in the stands and we're all watching this particular drama of Abraham and his family and the nation of Israel. In the scheme of national, you know, global events, it's not a very significant nation, but this is the most consequential nation because out of this nation will come the Savior. Third text, Genesis 49, verse 10. This is Jacob's blessing to his sons. He has 12 sons. These make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he blesses every one of his sons, but he singles out his, his fourth son, Judah. And this is what he says. This, this is verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So again, the prophecy narrows from all possible offspring of Eve, from one nation among all the nations of the world, which is Israel, and now among all the people of Israel, a single tribe, one of 12 sons within Israel, which is the tribe of Judah. We're also told that the Savior will be a royal figure. He will have a scepter. So we're told the nature of his salvation because the Savior will be a king. And his rule will include all the nations of the world. God said, I mean, Jacob says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so he will not just be a king of Israel. He will be the king of kings. His kingdom will cover the whole earth. It will be a world wide kingdom. That's what is predicted. That is what is at stake. The fourth text, we're just getting started, okay? Second Samuel chapter 7, buckle your seatbelts. This is a very important text, so important. The prophet Nathan comes to David, and in verses 12 through 14, this is what he says. He's speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled, and you, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So again, the prophecy narrows from out of all of the world, one nation, Israel. Out of all of Israel, one tribe, Judah. Out of all of Judah, the house of David. And so at this point, in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, out of billions and billions of human beings, we're talking about only a handful of human beings can now fulfill this prophecy. They have to be the direct uh, lineage from David, out of David's own body. So that we're told here, David's son will be the savior. So in the Bible, son includes grandson, great-grandson, so someone out of David's lineage. And this is why the title of the savior 
from this point on, he's often spoken of as the son of David. Okay? So this is the Savior, the son of David. We're told two more details. In verse 13, the text says, his throne will be established forever. The Hebrew word there is olam. It literally means ages or age after age. And so you might say, okay, maybe this is some rhetorical flourish. You know how people will say, oh, king, live forever. But, you know, nobody literally means that because no human being can live forever. Maybe. This is extravagant language, but maybe this is pointing to, a, to some kind of fulfillment beyond human categories, right? He will live forever, okay? The second thing we learn in verse 14 God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, the son of God in the way that we understand it, which is that this savior will be divine. It's not speaking necessarily of his divinity, but it's talking about a relationship. So what this is saying is that this savior king out of David's line will have, will be beloved, will be treated like God's own son. And it's also saying something about his character because he will, his sons look after their father. But again, like the whole language with forever, maybe the language is pointing to something more. Maybe he's the son of God in a greater sense that we can't even imagine. Next, we're going to look at the Psalms. There are many, many dozens of Psalms that are very specific, very direct, speaking of this future Davidic king. I'm just going to pick one, a very prominent one, which is Psalm 2. Here, um, God, uh, God is addressing the, uh, the, this future Davidic king. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, that's the Davidic king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So again, we see all the same themes. The Davidic king will be God's own son. He will subdue all enemies. He will prevail in battle. His rule will be universal. Verse 8, I will make the nations, notice it's plural, your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. And so this Davidic king, his kingdom will include all nations. And this uh, concept of a nation is actually um, the modern concept, like you know, France or Germany as a nation state, that's a very modern concept. In the Bible, when it says nations, it's talking about ethnicities. It's talking about people groups, right? So for example, the Kurdish nation, they don't actually have a political nation, but they're a people. So the... This Davidic king, his kingdom will cover the face of the earth. Notice the epic scale of this. In order for this to come true, his kingdom will, be, will have members of every ethnicity, every people group. Okay, how is this possibly going to come true? One more thing. In verse 2 of Psalm 2, the, the Davidic king is called the Lord's anointed. In the Bible, kings were anointed. They had oil poured on their head as a way to set them apart. And then from this point on, it became a kind of shorthand way to refer to this coming Davidic king. They would refer to him as the anointed one. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah. 
The Greek translation of the anointed one is Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title, okay? So this is a prophecy of the Messiah, this Davidic savior king, the Christ. Finally, we're going to look at the prophets. This is where it gets truly interesting. And in order to appreciate what happens in the prophets, I need to tell you a little bit about the history of Israel. So after the reign of King David and King Solomon, which is sort of the height of Israel's greatness and grandeur, the nation of Israel goes into significant decline. The northern tribes break off and form their own kingdom. They are eventually conquered by the Assyrians um, in 730 BC. The southern kingdom manages to hang on and survive, but they also are eventually conquered, this time by the Babylonians in 580 BC. And then, event- and then uh, uh, this sort of uh, dual conquest is a total decimation, total destruction of Israel. Jerusalem is burned to the ground. The temple is destroyed. And then you have this final pathetic scene. The last king in the line of David is seen, is, is taken captive to Babylon. He has to walk the entire distance barefoot, in chains, his eyes gouged out. It's a very pathetic scene, sorrowful scene. And then this is where things get truly interesting. Because this prophecy of the Messiah, this coming Davidic ruler whose dominion will cover the face of the earth, this particular prophecy is looking more and more improbable, more and more unlikely. And you would expect the prophets who are observing this, they're writing in the lead-up to the conquests, they're writing in the aftermath during the exile, you would expect them to downplay the prophecy. It's looking embarrassing. Maybe shift your focus. Maybe walk away (laughs) from the lineage of David, this now discredited family. Why pin all your hopes on the sons of David, this now discredited family? Why not at least broaden the pool of candidates so now it could be just any Jewish person who can who can achieve this rescue. But the prophets not only continue to talk about a Davidic king who is coming, but the prophecies become more insistent. They become more grandiose. The scale of his rule, of what he will accomplish, becomes more and more epic. The details of his coming become more specific, more precise, more concrete, so that we are given the location of his birth, Bethlehem, that's Micah 5.2. We are told that his mother will be a a virgin, that's Isaiah 7.14. Some people dispute this and say, oh, the, the, the proper translation is that his mother will be an unmarried maiden. Fine, it's equally improbable. He will be, we're told that he will be preceded by a forerunner, a messenger like Elijah, Micah chapter 4, verse 5. 
he will enter Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. He will live for a time in Egypt, Hosea 11.1. He will be rejected by the religious leaders, Psalm 118.22. He will be betrayed by a close friend, Psalm 55.13. He will be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. We are even told the specific time frame, a limited time frame, in which this prophecy, these predictions, will happen. If you look at Daniel chapter 2, Daniel 2 is really significant. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who conquered uh, the Jewish people. And he has this dream of this multi-layered statue. The top layer, the head, is made of gold. The arms and shoulders are silver. The torso is uh, bronze. And then the legs and feet are iron. And then in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this little rock. And the text specifically says, a rock not made by human hands, which is the Bible's way of saying it's of divine origin. It comes from God. This little rock breaks off from the cliff, comes tumbling down, smashes into the statue, pulverizes it into dust. And then this little rock, which seems so small and humble at first, begins to grow and grow until it fills the whole earth. And then Daniel gives the, 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 the interpretation. And then Daniel says, that statue, Nebuchadnezzar, represents the empires of the world. And he says, your empire, the Babylonian empire, is the gold layer. And then after you will come a second empire, which is silver, and then there will come a third empire, which is bronze, and then he says, during the fourth empire of iron, that is when the Messiah will come. And he will, bite, and he will be that little rock, which seems so inconspicuous, but he will destroy all the kingdoms of the world, and then it will grow and grow gradually over time until it fills the whole earth. Now, if you look at history, after the Babylonian empire, there was the Persian Empire of Darius and Xerxes. If you've ever seen the movie 300, that's where the Greeks were fighting. The Persian Empire was then conquered by Alexander the Great. That's the Greek Empire. That's the Third Empire. The Greek Empire was then conquered by the Romans. This is why there was such feverish expectations of the Messiah during the time of Christ, because all the Jewish people... They know how to count. Everyone understood that the Roman Empire, which conquered the Jewish people in 63 BC, the Roman Empire is Daniel's prophesied fourth iron empire. And so there was tremendous excitement. There was this widespread <clears throat> expectation. And so we're given a very specific timeline, and actually a narrow timeline, of only about 100 years in which the Messiah could come before the temple is destroyed. And so you have all of these prophecies. And here's the thing. There are so many prophecies, we haven't covered them all, that many of the prophecies seemingly contradict each other. So we're told that there's a Davidic king who will rule the world, but he will be opposed by the religious leaders. He will be betrayed by a close friend. We're told that the Messiah will be the king of kings. He will subjugate the world's empires, but at the same time, he will suffer humiliation and then ultimately death. And this is where we get to Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53 is hands down the most vivid, most specific, the most impressive of all the prophecies because it tells us that the Davidic king will be captured, tortured, and then executed. And it tells us this in, in impressive detail. So let me read you the passage. It is a lengthy passage, but well worth our attention. It's in your bulletin. I'll read to you starting in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So this is, again, as I said, a remarkable description of the death of the Messiah. Very vivid, very detailed. What do we learn here? The first thing is that we're told he will be a victim of injustice. If you read the passage, it's describing some kind of trial, some sort of judicial proceedings. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then during this trial, we're told he, he will be falsely accused, and he will be condemned even though he is innocent. Verse 9, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And then during the trial, he will make no defense, but he will voluntarily and meekly submit. Verse 7, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And Isaiah tells us that ultimately, this Messiah will be struck down not by man, because man has no power over him, but ultimately by God. Verse 4, he will be stricken, smitten by God. Verse 10, the it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So th this is God's doing. And then somehow, his death makes atonement for sin. He will be punished by God in our place as a perfectly innocent man, but for our sins. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement 
that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Even the manner of his death is described with shocking accuracy. It says that he will be pierced. It says that there will be stripes on his body. It even describes his burial. It says that he will be condemned with the wicked, but then somehow he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. That's verse 9. And so this portrait in the prophets is deeply paradoxical because on the one hand, you have a Messiah who will be this king whose rule will never end. His kingdom will stretch to the ends of the earth. He will be greater than Alexander the Great, greater than Genghis Khan. And at the same time, this king will face this ignominious death. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be tortured by his enemies. And then he will be brutally killed. And then somehow by his, by his death, that will bring peace. That will bring the forgiveness of sins. If this does not perfectly describe Jesus of Nazareth, then these prophecies are so contradictory that it makes complete nonsense. It's completely illogical. Who could have imagined such a thing? Prophecies that were written over a 1,600-year period, over 30 different authors. Again, not vague, generalized prophecies, but very specific, highly detailed. Not some obscure figure that never made any impact on the world, but arguably the most significant, the most important figure in world history. And it was all predicted and prophesied and described beforehand. How do you, how do you account for this? It has to be explained. And over, you know, over history, you know, people have proposed theories. There have been all kinds of possible explanations. I want to run through with you three, I believe, of the, the best proposals or the most likely proposals. So the first one is this is the result of textual interpolations. So this is an argument that was uh, advanced by liberal scholars all the way up to the 1950s. And so this argument says, uh, it acknowledges that the prophecies are stunningly, astonishingly accurate. But the reason why they're so accurate is because Christian writers inserted the prophecies into the Hebrew scriptures after the fact, centuries after the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, Christian writers wrote in these prophecies, like Isaiah 53, into the Old Testament. There are several problems with this theory. The first of which is that it's practically impossible. How would you go about, if you were to launch such a conspiracy, how would you go about collecting all of the Old Testament manuscripts and copies that were scattered throughout the ancient world and make the necessary changes. Mind you, the Jewish people are spread out. It's called the Jewish diaspora. They're scattered across the ancient world so that there were synagogues and there were copies of the Old Testament in as far-flung places as Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Ethiopia, Tunisia, Spain, Italy, Greece, how are you going to go around and track down all of the Old Testament copies and make these changes and ensure that no, none of the original copies 
continues that there's no alternate versions that we can say, hey, why is there this disparity? Secondly, how are you going to convince the Jewish people to go along with this cockamamie plan? Hey, we're going to monkey around with your sacred texts, which you believe is the word of God and inviolable, and we're going to insert prophecies that Jesus is the Messiah, whom you reject and don't believe in, and how are they going to, con and even if you can convince one, you know, dissident, kind of crazy Jewish group, how are you going to convince all of them to agree to this plan? And then how are you going to make sure that there's, no mem there's a memory wipe, so that none of the Jewish people ever have this story? Hey, do you remember when our sacred texts were rewritten, right? The final reason why uh, this is impossible is because the reason, do you know the reason why scholars stopped making this argument? It was made with a lot of vociferousness. They stopped making this argument in the 1950s. The reason is because something happened in the 1950s, which is that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? These are 850 very well-preserved scrolls from the ancient world you know, held in vases and you know, jars in these caves surrounding the Dead Sea. Because of their isolated location, because of the arid dry climate, the scrolls are extraordinarily well-preserved, dating all the way back to the third century BC, so 300 years before the time of Christ. And one of the first things scholars did was they looked at the Isaiah scrolls. And they read Isaiah 53. You know what they discovered about Isaiah 53? It is exactly the same as our Isaiah 53. No changes, word for word, it is the same text. So that now, every scholar fully recognizes that all of these prophecies were indeed written at the very least 300 years before the time of Christ. The second possible theory is intentional fulfillment. So people will say, okay, Prophecies were written before the time of Jesus. But Jesus went about, he, he, he got this notion in his head that he is the Messiah. And then he went to the Old Testament and he read all the prophecies and then he lived his life trying to run around fulfilling all, making sure that he lived his life to fulfill the prophecies. Several problems with that theory. First of all, several of the prophecies are out of his control, like the location of his birth his family lineage. There are other prophecies that talk about you know, the nature of his death. Like for example, Psalm 22, his bones won't, won't be broken. His clothing will be gambled over and, and, and um, split, uh, what is it? Uh, it, it will not be divided. And so how is he gonna ensure those specific details? But, but even if that's possible, why would anyone want to fulfill these prophecies? So the theory is that Jesus is going around. He's like, I'm going to trick everyone into thinking I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be arrested by the Romans. I'm going to be interrogated and then tortured. And then I'm going to be killed in the most brutal way possible, which is on the cross. Even if that thing was such a thing were possible, how does he then ensure that it's going to launch a worldwide movement? Right? How... How is he going to convince ancient people who knew what crucifixion was better than anyone? That it was the shameful death of a slave, this writhing, naked, horrific death. And then people would say, yes, 
That's the Messiah. They would worship him as the worldwide king. The third theory, I think, is the most likely, that the scriptures correctly prophesy the birth, life, and death of Jesus of Nazareth because it's true, because the scriptures are divine, because Jesus is the Messiah. And so that we would recognize him when he came, God wrote, God gave us these prophecies hundreds of years before the fact so that we would know that Jesus is the Savior. Do you know why? Because God loves us. And he came to us in Jesus Christ to save us. I want to close with a story. Um, there's a famous 19th century uh, Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, he was a Christian, and he was thinking about the incarnation. He was um, thinking about why, is, why it is that God came to us as a baby. And he wrote a story called The Parable of the King and the Maiden. This is how the story goes. Once upon a time, there was a great king. He was the greatest king in the land. All the noblemen trembled at his presence. His wealth was vast and limitless. His army was the greatest in the land. But this king fell in love with this lowly, humble maiden who lived in this small village dressed in rags, and he wondered how could he declare his love for her, this poor maiden. And so his advisor said, compel her by power. Bring her to your palace overwhelm her with your majesty and splendor, and then command her to love you. How can she resist? But the king realized that he could not command her love, that love must be freely given. It must be won. It cannot be coerced by power. His other, his other advisor said, well, then elevate her to your position. Shower her with gifts, dress her in purple and silk, crown her as your queen, and then surely she will love you. But the king realized that if he arrayed her in all the trappings of royalty, how could he know that she truly would love him for himself and not for the gifts that he had given her? Finally, he realized the only answer. He must descend to her level. And so he took off his crown, he set aside his royal robes, he renounced his throne and then dressed in the tattered rags of a humble peasant, he went in pursuit of his true love. I want you to know that this is not just a beautiful parable. It really happened in history. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. It is documented in dozens of manuscripts and documents. There is corroborating evidence of all the events, not just by Christian writers, but by non-Christian writers as well. That God so loved the world that in Jesus Christ, he took on flesh. He became a baby in a manger. He took upon all of our sorrows, all of our pain, the penalty of our sins, that he might rescue us 
that he might love us and save us from sin and death. Let's pray. Almighty God, we realize that the story of Christmas is not just a beautiful fairy tale that we wish were true, but it is a historical fact and not contrary to reason. Lord, what a wondrous thing that the gospel satisfies our hearts and deepest longings and engages our minds and intellects. Strengthen our faith. Help us to believe in you. And help us to give you our obedience and devotion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.